Book Two, Chapters Eighteen to Twenty One of On the Education of an Orator by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen. Some arts, however, are based on examination, that is to say, on the knowledge and proper appreciation of things, as for instance astronomy, which demands no action but is content to understand the subject of its study. Such arts are called theoretical. Others again are concerned with action. This is their end, which is realized in action, so that the action once performed, nothing more remains to do. These arts we style practical, and dancing will provide us with an example. Thirdly, there are others which consist in producing a certain result and achieve their purpose in the completion of a visible task. Such we style productive, and painting may be quoted as an illustration. In view of these facts, we must come to the conclusion that, in the main, rhetoric is concerned with action, for in action it accomplishes that which it is its duty to do. This view is universally accepted, although in my opinion rhetoric draws largely on the two other kinds of art for it may on occasion be content with the mere examination of a thing rhetoric is still in the orator's possession even though he be silent while if he gives up pleading either designedly or owing to circumstances over which he has no control he does not therefore cease to be an orator any more than a doctor ceases to be a doctor when he withdraws from practice perhaps the highest of all pleasures is that which we derive from private study, and the only circumstances under which the delights of literature are unalloyed are when it withdraws from action, that is to say, from toil, and can enjoy the pleasure of self-contemplation. But in the results that the orator obtains by writing speeches or historical narratives, which we may reasonably count as part of the task of oratory, we shall recognize features resembling those of a productive art. Still, if rhetoric is to be regarded as one of these three classes of art, since it is with action that its practice is chiefly and most frequently concerned, let us call it an active or administrative art, the two terms being identical. Chapter 19 I quite realize that there is a further question as to whether eloquence derives most from nature or from education. This question really lies outside the scope of our inquiry, since the ideal orator must necessarily be the result of a blend of both. But I do regard it as of great importance that we should decide how far there is any real question on this point. For if we make an absolute divorce between the two, nature will still be able to accomplish much without the aid of education while the latter is valueless without the aid of nature if on the other hand they are blended in equal proportions i think we shall find that the average orator owes most to nature while the perfect orator owes more to education we may take a parallel from agriculture a thoroughly barren soil will not be improved even by the best cultivation, while good land will yield some useful produce without any cultivation. But in the case of really rich land, 
cultivation will do more for it than its own natural fertility. Had Praxiteles attempted to carve a statue out of a millstone, I should have preferred a rough block of Parian marble to any such statue. On the other hand, if the same artist had produced a finished statue from such a block of Parian marble, its artistic value would owe more to his skill than to the material. To conclude, nature is the raw material for education. The one forms, the other is formed. Without material, art can do nothing. Material without art does possess a certain value, while the perfection of art is better than the best material. Chapter 20 More important is the question whether rhetoric is to be regarded as one of the indifferent arts, which in themselves deserve neither praise nor blame, but are useful, or the reverse, according to the character of the artist, or whether it should, as not a few even among philosophers hold, be considered as a virtue. For my own part, I regard the practice of rhetoric which so many have adopted in the past and still follow today as either no art at all, or as the Greeks call it, ateknia, for I see numbers of speakers, without the least pretension to method or literary training, rushing headlong in the direction in which hunger, or their natural shamelessness, calls them. Or else it is a bad art, such as is styled kakotechnia. For there have, I think, been many persons, and there are still some, who have devoted their powers of speaking to the destruction of their fellow men. There is also an unprofitable imitation of art, a kind of mataiotechnia, which is neither good nor bad, but merely involves a useless expenditure of labor, reminding one of the men who shot a continuous stream of vetch seeds from a distance through the eye of a needle, without ever missing his aim, and was rewarded by Alexander, who was a witness of the display, with the present of a bushel of vetch seeds, a most appropriate reward. It is to such men that I would compare those who spend their whole time at the expense of much study and energy in composing declamations which they aim at making as unreal as possible. The rhetoric, on the other hand, which I am endeavoring to establish, and the ideal of which I have in my mind's eye, that rhetoric which befits a good man and is in a word the only true rhetoric, will be a virtue. Philosophers arrive at this conclusion by a long chain of ingenious arguments, but it appears to me to be perfectly clear from the simpler proof of my own invention which I will now proceed to set forth. The philosophers state the case as follows. If self-consistency as to what should and should not be done is an element of virtue, and it is to this quality that we give the name of prudence, the same quality will be revealed as regards what should be said and what should not be said, and if there are virtues of which nature has given us some rudimentary sparks, even before we were taught anything about them, as for instance justice, of which there are some traces even among peasants and barbarians, it is clear that man has been so formed from the beginning as to be able to plead on his own behalf, not, it is true, with perfection, but yet sufficiently 
to show that there are certain sparks of eloquence implanted in us by nature the same nature however is not to be found in those arts which have no connection with virtue consequently since there are two kinds of speech the continuous which is called rhetoric and the concise which is called dialectic the relation between which was regarded by zeno as being so intimate that he compared the latter to the closed fist the former to the open hand even the art of disputation will be a virtue consequently there can be no doubt about oratory whose nature is so much fairer and franker i should like however to consider the point more fully and explicitly by appealing to the actual work of oratory for how will the orator succeed in panegyric unless he can distinguish between what is honorable and the reverse how can he urge a policy unless he has a clear perception of what is expedient how can he plead in the law courts if he is ignorant of the nature of justice again does not oratory call for courage since it is often directed against the threats of popular turbulence and frequently runs into peril through incurring the hatred of the great while sometimes as for instance in the trial of milo the orator may have to speak in the midst of a crowd of armed soldiers consequently if oratory be not a virtue perfection is beyond its grasp if on the other hand each living thing has its own peculiar virtue in which it excels the rest or at any rate the majority i may instance the courage of the lion and the swiftness of the horse it may be regarded as certain that the qualities in which men excels the rest are above all reason and powers of speech why therefore should we not consider that the special virtue of men lies just as much in eloquence as in reason it will be with justice then that cicero makes crosses say that eloquence is one of the highest virtues and that cicero himself calls it a virtue in his letters to brutus and in other passages but it may be urged a bad man will at times produce an exordium or a statement of facts and will argue a case in a manner that leaves nothing to be desired no doubt even a robber may fight bravely without courage ceasing to be a virtue even a wicked slave may bear torture without a groan and we may still continue to regard endurance of pain as worthy of praise we can point to many acts which are identical with those of virtue but spring from other sources however what i have said here must suffice as i have already dealt with the question of the usefulness of oratory chapter twenty one as to the material of oratory some have asserted that it is speech as for instance gorgias in the dialogue of plato if this view be accepted in the sense that the word speech is used of a discourse composed on any subject then it is not the material but the work just as a statue is the work of the sculpture for speeches like statues require art for their production if on the other hand we interpret speech as indicating the words themselves they can do nothing unless they are related to facts some again hold that the material consists of persuasive arguments but they form part of the work are produced by art 
and require material themselves. Some say that political questions provide the material. The mistake made by these lies not in the quality of their opinion, but in its limitation. For political questions are material for eloquence, but not the only material. Some, on the ground that rhetoric is a virtue, make the material with which it deals to be the whole of life. Others, on the ground that life regarded as a whole does not provide material for every virtue, since most of them are concerned only with departments of life, justice, courage, and self-control, each having their own duties and their own end, would consequently restrict oratory to one particular department of life, and place it in the practical or pragmatic department of ethics, that is to say, the department of morals which deals with the business of life. For my own part, and I have authority to support me, I hold that the material of rhetoric is composed of everything that may be placed before it as a subject for speech. Plato, if I read him aright, makes Socrates say to Gorgias that its material is to be found in things, not words, while in the Phaedrus he clearly proves that rhetoric is concerned not merely with law courts and public assemblies, but with private and domestic affairs as well, from which it is obvious that this was the view of Plato himself. Cicero also, in a passage of one of his works, states that the material of rhetoric is composed of the things which are brought before it, but makes certain restrictions as to the nature of these things. In another passage, however, he expresses his opinion that the orator has to speak about all kinds of things. I will quote his actual words. Although the very meaning of the name of the orator and the fact that he professes to speak well seem to imply a promise and undertaking that the orator will speak with elegance and fullness on any subject that may be put before him. And in another passage he says, It is the duty of the true orator to seek out, hear, read, discuss, handle and ponder everything that befalls in the life of men, since it is with this that the orator is concerned, and this that forms the material with which he has to deal. But this material, as we call it, that is to say, the things brought before it, has been criticized by some, at times on the ground that it is limitless, and sometimes on the ground that it is not peculiar to oratory, which they have therefore dubbed a discursive art, because all is grist that comes to its mill. I have no serious quarrel with these critics, for they acknowledge that rhetoric is concerned with every kind of material, though they deny that it has any peculiar material just because of that material's multiplicity. But in spite of this multiplicity, rhetoric is not unlimited in scope, and there are other minor arts whose material is characterized by the same multiplicity. Such, for instance, is architecture, which deals with everything that is useful for the purpose of building. Such, too, is the engraver's art, which works on gold, silver, bronze, iron. As for sculpture, its activity extends to wood, ivory, marble, glass, and precious stones, in addition to the materials already mentioned. And things which form the material for other artists do not, for that reason, 
cease forthwith to be material for rhetoric. For if I ask what is the material of the sculpture, I shall be told bronze. And if I ask what is the material of the maker of vessels, I refer to the craft styled calceotique by the Greeks. The answer will again be bronze. And yet, there is all the difference in the world between vessels and statues. Similarly, medicine will not cease to be an art, because, like the art of the gymnast, it prescribes rubbing with oil and exercise, or because it deals with diet, like the art of cookery. Again, the objection that to discourse of what is good, expedient, or just is the duty of philosophy presents no difficulty. For when such critics speak of a philosopher, they mean a good man. Why should I feel surprised to find that the orator, whom I identified with the good man, deals with the same material? There is all the less reason, since I have already shown in the first book that philosophers only usurped this department of knowledge after it had been abandoned by the orators. It was always the peculiar property of rhetoric, and the philosophers are really trespassers. Finally, since the discussion of whatever is brought before it is the task of dialectic, which is really a concise form of oratory, why should not this task be regarded as also being the appropriate material for continuous oratory? There is a further objection made by certain critics who say, well, then, if an orator has to speak on every subject, he must be master of all the arts. I might answer this criticism in the words of Cicero, in whom I find the following passage. In my opinion, no one can be an absolutely perfect orator unless he has acquired a knowledge of all important subjects and arts. I, however, regard it as sufficient that an orator should not be actually ignorant of the subject on which he has to speak. For he cannot have a knowledge of all causes, and yet he should be able to speak on all. On what then will he speak? On those which he has studied. Similarly, as regards the arts, he will study those concerning which he has to speak, as occasion may demand, and will speak on those which he has studied. What then, I am asked, will not a builder speak better on the subject of building, and a musician on music? Certainly, if the orator does not know what is the question at issue. Even an illiterate peasant, who is a party to a suit, will speak better on behalf of his case than an orator who does not know what the subject in dispute may be. But on the other hand, if the orator receive instruction from the builder or the musician, he will put forward what he has thus learned better than either, just as he will plead a case better than his client, once he has been instructed in it. The builder and the musician will, however, speak on the subject of their respective arts, if there should be any technical point which requires to be established. Neither will be an orator, but he will perform his task like an orator, just as when an untrained person binds up a wound, he will not be a physician, but he will be acting as one. It is suggested that such topics never crop up in panegyric, deliberative, or forensic oratory, when the question of the construction of a port at Ostia came up for discussion, had not the orator to state his views? And yet it was a subject requiring the technical knowledge of the architect. 
does not the orator discuss the question whether livid spots and swellings on the body are symptomatic of ill health or poison and yet that is a question for the qualified physician will he not deal with measurements and figures and yet we must admit that they form part of mathematics for my part i hold that practically all subjects are under certain circumstances liable to come up for treatment by the orator if the circumstances do not occur the subjects will not concern him we were therefore right in asserting that the material of rhetoric is composed of everything that comes before the orator for treatment an assertion which is confirmed by the practice of everyday speech for when we have been given a subject on which to speak we often preface our remarks by calling attention to the fact that the matter has been laid before us gorgeous indeed felt so strongly that it was the orator's duty to speak on every subject that he used to allow those who attended his lectures to ask him questions on any subjects they pleased hermagoras also asserted that the material of oratory lay in the cause and the questions it involved thereby including every subject that can be brought before it if he denies that general questions are the concern of oratory he disagrees with me but if they do concern rhetoric that supports my contention for there is nothing which may not crop up in a cause or appear as a question for discussion aristotle himself also by his tripartite division of oratory into forensic deliberative and demonstrative practically brought everything into the orator's domain since there is nothing that may not come up for treatment by one of these three kinds of rhetoric a very few critics have raised the question as to what may be the instrument of oratory my definition of an instrument is that without which the material cannot be brought into the shape necessary for the effecting of our object but it is not the art which requires an instrument but the artist knowledge needs no instruments for it may be complete although it produces nothing but the artist must have them the engraver cannot work without his chisel nor the painter without his brush i shall therefore defer this question until i come to treat of the orator as distinct from his art End of Book 2, Chapter 21